The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Today, join me to discuss the critical issues behind what is now considered to be the worst environmental disaster in American history. Tom Bowman is one of the premier interpreters of global change, climate and energy science, and green business strategies. He is a social entrepreneur, advisor, communication strategist, and science interpreter. As president of Bowman Design Group, he led award-winning climate exhibition designs for the Mariam Koshland Science Museum of the National Academy of Sciences and Birch Aquarium at Scripps. Pat O'Brien is a veteran investigative journalist who has concentrated on the issues leading up to and during a disaster that has now impacted the ways of life for inhabitants residing in the southeastern region of the United States. Tom Bowman, Pat O'Brien, welcome. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, David. Tom, uh, thanks for joining us. And Pat, uh, we have been concentrating, Tom, over the last uh, 50 or 60 days quite heavily on the situation in the Gulf and obviously in other areas in life and the impacts of what this has done uh, as to people's lifestyles and probably in itself in many ways, it's a strange way to put this, but possibly it could be look at, looked upon as a blessing to actually bring people to the forefront of the conditions and the uh, challenges that we're facing up to in the future. What are your present mandates there, Tom, in California? What are you specifically working on right now? Well, as a, uh, in my design capacity, we are about to open uh, a very ambitious uh, energy education experience for one of the large California utility companies that, that talks about empowering um, uh, residential consumers and small businesses to find ways to, to conserve energy, manage that energy use, and save money. Uh, and this is all part of the national and California investment in the smart grid and, and clean energy future um, that in California is actually coming under challenge uh, with the voters in the fall. There's a ballot initiative that would, uh, if passed, would essentially destroy California's landmark climate protection law, which goes into effect in 2012, and encourages our state to reduce dramatically its consumption of, of oil and uh, reduce dramatically our emissions of carbon dioxide. We've talked really in great detail in the past, Tom, and of course we've shared a program with uh, Dr. Cleve Stevens. Mm -hmm. Is there a real acknowledgement in California of the problems that we face, uh, not only with the Gulf of Mexico, but, but other problems that we, we don't probably know about? What is this doing to people's thought patterns, people's awareness over there? Or are people just uh, unaware of the severity of this situation? My sense of it is that people are largely aware that this is a very large and severe problem, uh, but people tend to compartmentalize in some very surprising ways, I, at least in terms of what we're hearing in the news media. I, I don't see people translating the catastrophe we're watching in the Gulf of Mexico into thinking about their own driving behavior, consumption behavior, and that kind of thing. And after all, uh, nobody would get permits to drill in deep water in the Gulf of Mexico if we weren't uh, consuming energy, you know, almost a quarter of the world's oil every year here in the United States. So on the one hand, there's, there seems to be a, a failure to connect what we're watching devastate the Gulf of Mexico with the lifestyles that we live. Um, 
But on the flip side of that coin, and California sort of leads the nation in this, in terms of policy at least, there seems to be a very strong uh, majority in the public that is eager to have some kind of comprehensive climate and energy uh, regulation and legislation passed. And I say this because some studies that have come out of Yale and George Mason universities, even this year during the economic uh, recession, have shown that large majorities of the public favor regulating carbon dioxide as a pollutant, encouraging energy efficiency, regulating other kinds of pollution from business, uh, and, and the motivations appear to be complex. A lot of people want to protect the environment. Some people want to improve our competitiveness in a future green economy. Um, some people want to uh, reduce our dependence on foreign oil and oil, generally speaking. Um, and I think that a lot of these, these uh, experiences, these perspectives are starting to converge in people's minds, uh, but haven't fully taken shape. Uh, and as you say, if there is a silver lining in what's happening in the Gulf of Mexico, it might be that it provides something of a catalytic experience for people to start making sense out of this. Can I turn to you, Pat, uh, maybe give us an update on the situation, not only in Florida where you're based, but also Louisiana. Clearly now there are massive concerns over health, concerns over the chemicals being used, and, and more than anything, concerns over the fact that this oil may not be able to be capped off. Well, it's, of course, a major concern. However, I don't think the people have been able to fully get their their arms around it, probably the same way as um, the different ways to um, work with climate change. Uh, the, it's out there. The information is kind of out there. But as far as their own personal daily lives, I don't think it's fully set in as to the possible severity of what is happening. It's, uh, as of today's uh, program, it is one of the most dangerous um, uh, problems that we've ever had on the planet, um, environmentally. And it's something that um, is still going through a tremendous amount of testing and research to see what the outcome of the impact of this oil spill is going to be. And yet, many of the people are still going on with their uh, daily lives, and I do not believe that we're getting the full information out of the media in regard to uh, a product, for example, like Corexit, that is a uh, very toxic poison that's being used as a dispersant. And um, that, um, I think, is probably one of the major uh, issues that we're going to find in probably years down the road, maybe sooner, uh, that was a part of this BP spill. Uh, the oil um, by itself, while it has high levels of methane in it, as uh, we had had Dr. Kessler on the air with us, and he had explained the high levels of methane, we still don't know what the methane and the corexit is going to be. What we do know is that the Corexit product that's used by BP is made by Nelco Corporation, which is kind of like a sister to the BP Corporation. And it's a product that probably should not have been used because it's been banned in the UK and Europe since 1998, went under a review just uh, as late as 2010 uh, for not to be used in Europe. You know, and just to come in there, Pat, and I'll come back to you shortly, and I was going to say, Tom, you know, we've had these programs over the months, and, you know, here we have this clear picture from Pat, this sort of pragmatic approach, this clear approach to the conditions down there. It, it does actually seem that throughout these programs we've been trying to figure out what it would be that, that, that initiates... Uh, the change in people, and as we've just mentioned, Tom, it probably is this that is going to be that catalyst for change now. Well, it could very well be, uh, and it depends a great deal on how activists and the news media portray this event. And the reason I say that is because historically the way environmentalists have advanced their causes uh, when anything happens 
is to identify a particular corporate bad guy that's responsible for the problem and make them out to be the villain, which is never very difficult to do. Uh, and public attention turns against the villainous corporation, and it allows uh, politicians to inst- institute regulations and legislation that help solve the, address the problem overall. And and so, in a sense, the focus on BP is a wedge into that, and you see it, what's happening in, in Congress already, uh, removing the cap on liability, for example, uh, to, for oil companies. But the question that, that has yet to be answered is whether this problem will be framed primarily as a, as a BP problem or a dependence on oil problem in the bigger sense. Can I ask you, Pat, you've been in journalism for many years, you know, all the way back to Watergate. What is this reluctance in your mind, and I realize that we talked about this in great depth, of the main media not willing to support these issues in helping people, particularly in that area, to make provisions to, without panicking them, but to make provisions to alert them that the long-term health issues is probably evident enough at this stage for them to make changes to their lifestyle, possibly move away for a while, change their perspective. Well, my opinion, and this is only an opinion, and it was one of the main reasons why I got out of the news business. When I originally went into the news business some 40 years ago, um, I would never see an, an advertising salesman or management uh, in my office to get me to change a story. This, however, is a incident where we're seeing first the face of Tony Hayward, CEO, um, saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry that this happened. And then we see other faces of BP who are again apologizing and saying they are going to do everything in their power. What people don't realize is that is not free time uh, that is being uh, used as a public service announcement. That Those frequency of advertising uh, that you're seeing, and it is what we would call in the industry as saturation advertising, is paid for by BP. Now, that means that if I were to say something that wasn't exactly in line with what BP, who has taken over control of the media, in my opinion, uh, when they have someone like Dick Cheney, is literally heading up the uh, the public relations spin for BP, Halliburton, Transocean. When you have that happening, and that kind of pressure is on the advertising uh, portion of the networks, do they want to take that money that would be going into their coffers, or do they want to say, no, I'm not going to take that money, and I'm going to tell the truth the way we see it? Can I ask, Tom, if we have this amazing amount of funding from BP uh, and it is very much controlling uh, the, the, the pockets of media and, and certainly everything points to that, how could we, uh, for people like yourself, for scientists like Jerry Schubel and others, mm-hmm. um, best use that and, and uh, turn around to BP and say, look... Um, now is the time to to put this money into different areas to take care of this situation and to step up to the plate. Is there is there a, a good um, solution in that? Well, I see. I sort of sort of see two things simultaneously. One is that, um, uh, as Pat said, the the enormous financial influence over the news media is conditioning what the public, what we all see. And if we want to learn more about this, we have to do our own digging at websites like NOAA and, and other places to find out uh, a b- bigger picture of what's going on. And it's not, a, not at all trivial to do, so it's not something most people will do. Um, additionally, a second layer on top of what Pat said is that you know so many people in the news industry now work on such short time frames with such limited resources. Um, that they are looking to get a story out very, very quickly, and it's hard to do the kind of investigative work that, that we're talking about. But there is a long tradition of 
turning the public's attention and, and perception of a problem around by focusing not just on the content of the disaster, but on the flow of money from BP, for example, to the news media, and from BP to government, BP to, to other areas. Um, people profoundly dislike being duped and bought off. And one of the ways to, to sort of open the door, I think, is, is simply to make clear where the money is coming from. Well, the fourth largest uh, contributor to the 2009 campaign was the oil industry, and specifically BP, which people don't understand. So this issue is a lot larger and has been going on for a long period of time. And in addition to that, you also had the lobbyists. They're, I mean, they're, they're everywhere in Washington, D.C., Friends of ours who have been in Washington for many terms are saying they don't even recognize the place with the amount of new jobs that have been created by government, not private industry, but by government, to the point where we had a former congressman on who couldn't even get to friends of his because of the amount of minions that he had to go through to get to them. Um, the, the issue is also, as we have kind of defined the big money is pretty hard to reject when you are um, are beholding to that same big money and have been for long periods of time. Can I go back to something actually, gentlemen, that Bruce Piasecki had said to me in a, in a program that we're looking at a a future of frugality, and I think that there's a great solution in that. But, you know, Tom, you're living in California there, and we know the intensity of traffic. We know how people rely on uh, oil-driven vehicles. Mm -hmm. What is it that is going to, you know, if you look at this disaster, which is probably far worse than we can even imagine, not only in the short term, but in the longer term, and that's not going to sway people. What is it that is going to sway people away from this greed, this advertising funding that we talk about here, and and this need for it, and it actually being so strong that organizations like the media will rather take the money than than talk about the real issues you know what is it in your mind that would finally uh, change this whole paradigm where people will turn around and say hang on a minute well we're really talking about a, a combination of a change in values and a change in opportunities um, the, and what I mean by opportunities is that the public health community discovered long ago that urging people to do uh, to live a more healthful lifestyle when they don't have the infrastructure to support it only makes people angry so if you tell people in southern california or atlanta or the washington dc area or any other major metropolitan area that they need to abandon their cars today uh... you're not likely to 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 get a very warm reception because in so many places southern california a classic example of it there really aren't very many good alternatives for most people. Um, now, the way to so so one way to get there, of course, is is rapid development of alternatives that allow people to be dramatically more energy efficient. Uh, and these typically ins- include things like incentives on on uh, fuel efficient cars, building of public transportation and bikeways, and and things of that nature. Uh, simultaneously, one of the other uh, forces that has changed public opinion frequently in history has been um, either a sense of real impending danger, that's what Pearl Harbor was all about, and uh, certainly for people living along the Gulf Coast, uh, this oil spill represents that kind of threat, and to most of the rest of us, we aren't yet connected to the feeling that it's a threat to us, but it certainly is. We would be, however, if they were giving us the real truth in which we've been able to uncover just with a very small news operation, two and a half of us. Can we've you been describe? able to uncover facts. Uh, so it's not that they don't have the ability to do it. We're just not being told. Is and this about humanity's unwillingness to change a, a lifestyle, Tom? 
yes. I mean, I think that, you know, given the enormity of the, of the uh, sustainability crisis that we face, uh, it's very easy for most people to turn a, a blind eye and live in a world of denial. Um, and you add to that a, a, a growing sense of hostility toward the government that, and frustration with government that you see in the Tea Party movement uh, and the kind of libertarian ethos that's part of that, which is very ideological and not particularly practical. Um, and you have a political environment that is very hostile toward making community-based decisions about our, our collective welfare. It's very difficult to bring those kind of issues into the political debate uh, without them becoming highly polarized, ideological, and, and terribly mean-spirited. Uh, and this is, this is where, and of course that's what the news media largely covers. They treat, uh, they treat political elections like horse races. It's all about the competition. It's not about the end result on our society. Um, and this is a major, think, major uh, failing. Could I ask you a quick question, Tom? Um, yes. You know, I think that most people will agree that we've got to be able to change our lifestyle. Um, but part of what the issue has been, at least for me, looking at it in a, now that I'm looking at this Gulf Coast situation uh, and, and really scrutinizing what has been done and what hasn't, there are, there are so many jobs that are around this oil industry. Um, there are so many people that depend on it and so many different corporations that have uh, various affiliations with the industry itself. Shipbuilders, um, these skimming boats, these uh, fishermen that have lost their lifestyle now. And yet, when you look at this, really, and take it in perspective, this is the first major accident in 30 years in the oil industry mm-hmm. here in America. Mm-hmm. So, and we're obviously seeing there's a tremendous amount of oil here. We're seeing it come into our Gulf, and in the in the the, the Part of the issue, the way I'm understanding it, and you're, you may disagree with me, and I'm sure, and you have every right to, but um, part of this is, had the environmentalists not had their way uh, and allowed the drilling where it is safe and two, three hundred feet has been safe, has not had a problem in, in this 30 years that it's been going on. Had that been the case, there's plenty of oil to sustain America until we are able to stretch that oil with like the concepts of the new energy saving cars or electric vehicles or whatever but is it not maybe the case that this whole green initiative has been rushed and maybe kind of put down the throats of americans to the place where they're saying we're not going to take it anymore like is coming up in the tea parties are you saying that it's because of the environmental movement that the BP was drilling in such deep water and drilling into a reservoir that, that wasn't very well understood? Yes. So it would, be, it would be foolish to claim that the environmental movement hasn't made its mistakes. I was recently on, uh, and David, we were together with Stuart Brand not all that long ago, um, who wrote recently wrote a book, Holer's discipline in which he says you know, he, is, he has turned his opinion around on uh, nuclear power. He sees it as one of the most effective ways that we can reduce carbon emissions in the near term as we move toward a, a low carbon economy. Um, and yet he was one of the people who helped bring the development of the nuclear industry in America to its knees uh, in the 70s. And he says for that I apologize for the work we're doing now. Um, you know, you're welcome. And I think that that is a very appropriate way to talk about what the environmental movement in America has done. On the one hand, um, by focusing on toxic pollution, on a lot of land use problems, uh, 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 pesticides that were that were harming our health, smog that's been harming our health, cleanup of, of streams and rivers, the environmental movement has been extremely effective in in creating the regulations that have made America a somewhat cleaner and safer place to live. The, the downside of all that, of course, that, is that I we don't, don't make mis- yeah. is that people make mistakes. And I don't think there has been a clear understanding 
um, of the kind of volume of energy that we demand, that we consume, and all of the risks inherent in procuring it. So really, this becomes a a community-led responsibility. It's very much about all of us as consumers. It, it, yeah, in a sense, there's plenty of blame to go around. Um, uh, BP obviously made mistakes in managing and operating this well. Uh, M- Mineral and Mine Service obviously made mistakes in oversight. And uh, EPA made a mistake in uh, the type of product that they're allowed them to use as a, as a dispersant. Yes, exactly. Um, and I, but I think I kind of take David's point, and I think it's your point, Pat, that, that we, all, we are all involved in this. And uh, um, I have heard the claim on the right, you know, from people like Rush Limbaugh, that we should blame the envir- environmentalists for this because BP wouldn't have been drilling in deep water but for the environmentalists who kept them out of, of places closer to home. And, you know, mm-hmm. the argument being made is that the not-in-my-backyard mentality has created more risk and more danger than, uh, than we've ever seen before. Uh, I don't know factually whether that's tr- true or not. The argument is kind of the argument is kind of, uh, of this. Um, there, there is plenty of oil, uh, Anwar, for example, and so on. We, that's already been proven. Uh, and and the, yes, there is a need for nuclear. Um, there, but the thing that I don't think is sustainable in this whole issue is taking money or uh, uh, taking our money and putting it with countries that hate us when we've got the resource here if it was responsibly done. And, I, and the other question that, that, that I have to ask you at this point is, what do you think is going to happen with the controversy that Al Gore has currently found himself in to the whole green movement? Well, before we get to Al Gore, um, I, I would say... When you think about Anwar and so forth, the United States uses 22% of the world's oil production every year. I don't, from what I understand, the United States doesn't have anywhere near 22% of the world's oil resources. We, there's no way that we could become entirely self-sufficient using the volume of oil that we currently use. There's experts that will, uh, right here in the United States, that will tell you there's more oil and we should be exporting it instead of importing it okay okay and and whether that's regardless of who's correct and i'm not taking a position Mm -hmm. on that um the backstory here is that if we do develop all these resources and we take all these fossil resources and burn them um, we're going to change the climate on the in the world so dramatically um, that we will have much much bigger problems to deal with than we'd have uh, importing oil from countries that dislike us. So essentially, at the end of the day, we have to find a replacement, whether in part or whole, to the oil resource. I think that's the point, yes. Now, if that is the case, and, and I see where you're going, Pat, much of the revenue that feeds society, feeds business, feeds the consumers, feeds media, is coming from the oil industry. And this is where I go back to, for both of you gentlemen, if that is the case, what would that change, what would that solution be to reverse that so that people are seeing the possibilities, the opportunities of livelihoods and funding for any of those aforementioned vehicles from something else apart from oil? Maybe, Tom, you would, would want to respond to that. Yeah, I think that we are in the very early stages of creating that kind of opportunity, and, and people don't see it yet. And I'll give you one example that I stumbled upon recently at a conference. You know, from a greenhouse gas perspective, coal is even worse than oil. It's the, it's the highest emitter of carbon dioxide of the, of the three fossil fuels. So getting off of coal power for electricity is hugely important from a climate point of view, or capturing that those emissions and uh, you know the the whole program to develop tests to see if we can bury that underground in deep deep geological formations like abandoned oil fields and capture it and store it there 
um, are, are only being tested, haven't been proven. Well, I happened to meet the CEO of a company that's developing a process that combines minerals with the exhaust gases from power plants, and the result is that you create cement, you create concrete, um, which is a profitable product. And if they, they're doing two large-scale development uh, pr- uh, tests now, one in California and one in China, and if they're successful, this, this turns one of the most dangerous pollutants that we're dealing with from a climate perspective into a raw material that we can use, uh, that businesses can make money on. And it allows us, to, if, it's, if it's employed rapidly, scaled up rapidly, it, it takes away the burden of getting off of coal rapidly um, because we could, in fact, sequester uh, uh, the emissions that we're trying to get rid of from coal in something else, and it creates jobs doing it, and it creates business doing it. I haven't, haven't thought yet much, haven't seen much yet about how large numbers of people who work in the oil industry will find opportunities in other industries, um, but it's these kind of surprising developments that become the mechanisms that allow that to happen. One of the really critical questions, and I think it's a hugely critical question, is can we do this quickly? Can I ask you, Pat, down in Florida in particular, emphasis on Louisiana, we've had this whole argument uh, about the offshore rigs, and, and, you know, uh, President Obama wanted to uh, continue operation. The judge came in and said, no, you, you cannot do that while we're going through this chaos. What is the position of people down there? Would they generally rather continue operating these rigs with possible risk? Out of Louisiana, it's drill, baby, drill. That's what they want to see happen, because otherwise, not only have they lost the fishing industry, the tourism industry, but they've lost the main support industry, and that's the drilling of oil. Now, there's another another part to this equation that I think even the greenhouse gas people would have to say is a reality that could be chosen, and that is methane gas as a source of uh, fuel. Would you or would you not? Could I just ask you though, Pat, with that in mind, and also Tom, uh, if there is a reluctance to stop this production of oil, and and Tom, this goes back to my original comment, then really the responsibility not only lies here on government, think tanks, EPA and everybody else, but it's, it's really a responsibility that has to be taken by everybody and that includes everybody in louisiana in whatever state they're in today because they are making choices you know there there are choice points here um so if they are going to continue that industry because it's the only form of revenue then they have to accept the accountability for that well on that score i think a couple of points you've made are are right on target first of all this is um this is the first tragedy of this epic proportion. I mean, we saw Exxon Valdez, there have been any number of fairly big spills in the Gulf. And in fact, I was reading just today that the amount of oil-eating bacteria in Gulf waters is, is high because they're used to it, and they live there, and that, that, might, be, that might prove to be helpful. Um, I don't think it's realistic to think that we're going to get away from oil anytime, you know, in the immediate future. But in terms of the, and, and I understand why, uh, I don't disagree, Pat, with what you're finding in, in Louisiana, that drill baby drill is the mantra, because it is, in fact, the economy. And part of the challenge is to begin to create an alternative economy that people can move to. And we, we as a society, are dragging our feet in that way. Um, interestingly enough, I, you know, I was recently in a debate with, a, with an uh, oil industry representative in a, a really a discussion about California's climate law and the effort to undo it here in California. And one of the interesting things is that California garners 60% of the clean tech venture capital investment, largely because California has taken a forward-leaning policy toward greenhouse gas emissions that have made this um, a, a hotbed for developing experimental technology. That kind of... Uh, of of uh, venture capital interest is the kind of thing that that ultimately creates jobs. Um, 
but it does take the kind of regulatory environment and incentives that make uh, that help investors see where markets are headed in order to make their bets there. I, 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 Pat, you know, we're building this story, and I look at that and very, I understand, uh, Tom, I agree, but you know, is there not an irony here now? Um, Pat, in Louisiana, you have many, many people now facing up to some fairly heavy health issues, and yet those same people, and I'm not pointing fingers or or making judgments here, but those very people are insisting on drilling still. Is there not an irony there? There is, and and again, I think part of this is, again, uh, you know, my news investigation is always follow the money trail. And um, when you take a look at the the greenhouse gases, not that I'm saying that it's, it's bad, but Let's take let's take a couple of words like um, what used to be global warming, and because the Earth wasn't warming anymore, it became climate change. But when you take a look at who is behind and who's saying those words, I have a real problem as an investigative reporter in believing the story anymore because it keeps changing. Now, on the other side of that, I see for a need for alternative fuels, but not for the reason that they're claiming. I see that we need to preserve as much of the, the natural resources that we can, and by utilizing those in a better way, we are going to preserve that for generations that are going to come behind us. What I'm, where I'm having the problem is this rush to get that done and errors that are being made. For example, Spain tried the windmills and they're now going away from it because they almost went broke doing it. Um, again, a lot more testing, I think, has to be done on what is the alternative. But in the meantime, for many generations to come, the reliance on oil is going to be imperative. And I I say oil, I want to also add methane gas. One of the things that we found in our investigation is in this particular area where they they have had an issue, the methane gas level is 100,000, a million times higher than normal in an oil uh, deal. Normally you get about 5, 7% of oil has methane in it. What they're finding in the research of of professors that we've just recently talked to is that the methane down there is hundreds and thousands and even millions of times more methane in the oil that's coming out of this this well than what they could have ever anticipated. Hello. And so so the the, the idea is to be able to uh, connect that all together and use make that go sparingly but at the same time not rely on others to be able to develop it for us. May I ask you Tom, just complimenting that if we look at this in communication terms, it's almost uh, like writing a story it is very much about narrative the main line media to me still uses these words of spill um, gusher. Uh, th- these are probably not well-appointed words to use for the general public. What could you use in terms of communication, uh, following on from what Pat has said about the methane levels, that would encourage people, particularly in areas like Louisiana, to realize their situation, but to, to think differently how they can take this this crisis and create an opportunity, what sort of narrative would you have to give people to encourage them to think differently? Well, I think I would start, uh, Pat, by urging you to turn your investigative reporters' follow-the-money lens on the bigger oil industry and, and climate and resource story here, because there is a very well-documented uh, thread between ExxonMobil primarily the oil industry general in general 
And the kinds of things you had to say earlier about global warming, the, the truth of the matter, the scientific evidence is that global warming has not slowed down. It has not stopped. Um, and yet there is a lot of, uh, a lot of reports and, and media reports come out of the Heartland Institute, the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and others who are funded by the oil industry to create doubt about whether global warming is real or not. And, and I think there's a huge narrative here that hasn't been explored from an investigative perspective um, that involves BP, it involves ExxonMobil, it involves the oil industry and coal industries in general, and the campaign to, to keep us from having confidence in the reports that suggest we should find another way. Well, and I, think that I, that's again, I understand what you're saying, and and again, there becomes the confusion and the issue because um, they're both sides will say, "I got my scientists that say this, I got my scientists that say that." I, I think it's caused a massive confusion. And then when you take a look at the media that is is controlled by either one side or the other, and mostly, what I would say uh, toward the the greenhouse environmentalist people, when you look at who owns the media, I mean, when you really follow the numbers and find out who owns the media, the media is owned by the left. Now, let's say Al Gore, uh, where, did, where did he fall? Left. You see, the messages are, are mixed. And, and it, it, to me, there are plenty of natural resources uh, for us to be able to do both, why are we dependent on people that hate us? Would it be, gentlemen, would it be inspiring to change that narrative, that communication from uh, the, the corporate mansions, as it were, like BP, like ExxonMobil, uh, and actually turn that to the people who who are actually engulfed in this situation in places like Louisiana and, and have them start thinking about uh, different processes, different lifestyles, different ways of getting over the message to, to corporations like BP that they should start throwing their money more at uh, exploring these different lifestyles. Maybe that's a question for you, Tom. Well, that's uh, the question of whether you could encourage a vested interest like a BP, um, who you know historically has invested more in alternative energy than the other oil companies have, um, but it's still a very very small percent of their revenue, uh, because alternative energy is in fact a very very tiny percentage of our of our energy supply. If you're if you're suggesting that the the move is to convince large corporations to become better corporate citizens and help find a pathway forward that undermines their core business. I don't think that's likely to happen. I, I think well, rather... no, wait, no, let's just, let's explore that for a second, that statement. BP, okay, had more violations on them than all the other oil companies combined that were drilling in the same area. And if you take it well to well, in other words, okay, let's take a look at, at um, Shell or, or Exxon or whatever one you want to pick uh, and take that and then find out that BP, per well, per well, okay, BP had more violations than anybody else. The reason for that was the large sums of money that were paid to politicians uh, the fourth largest lobbyist on Capitol Hill on the, on the 2009 elections, and that our politicians got beholden to them, and our regulatory agencies looked the other way. They were found partying together, uh, it, it, all kinds of things that when you really uncover the story, they were not being regulated. Mm -hmm. Now, if you had proper regulation, you wouldn't have that spell. Mm -hmm. How do you how do you how do you say, for example, that Goldman Sachs, who owned the majority of stock of BP, six weeks prior to the actual uh, destruction of that Deepwater Horizon well, sold off forty two percent of their stock and actually made a profit? How do you go with the fellow that uh, the Tony Hayward? CEO, which I just saw him again on an interview, they've moved him aside, but at the same time, 
he at the same time sold uh, exactly six weeks out. He sold uh, 33% of his uh, stock and made a profit on it, paid off his house in Kent, and also um, uh, had stuffed away money for his family because he's going to wind up going to jail. I don't have any question in my mind about that. Let me, let me ask the question, Tom, and I think that we're all aware that these are valid concerns if you take the control out of these individuals uh, away from these individuals you take control away from these larger oil companies who could you find what sort of organizations that make up could you find who could become the caretakers in this situation well it's interesting you ask it that way the um, the regulatory agencies were created of course to be that and it is the, as, um, as Pat says, it's the influence of money on politics that has undermined that role. Um, as we've seen these kinds of corporate, this kind of corporate misbehavior in the past, in lots of other kinds of issues, there has been a, a, a resurgence of regulation that's been tougher. Um, in California, uh, at least, you know, most utility companies, and this is really true across most of the, most of the country, the electric system has, has been partially deregulated, but it's still a partially regulated industry. Um, it's seen as a utility that serves the public welfare, public good. Uh, and so it's, it's controlled either, either well or poorly um, by government officials who are supposedly independent of the industry. Um, and they're allowed to make a... a particular level of profit. It's carefully controlled. They can spend money on certain kinds of things, but not others. Um, whereas the oil industry has been essentially unregulated or poorly regulated, certainly not, not from that point of view. They can make all the profits they make. Uh, it, it could be. I could, I could foresee, but I can't see it happening easily um, because of the money involved. Um, the treating of energy in general as more treated more like a, a regulated utility. There may might well still be corporate hands steering the entities that operate it, um, but it's not impossible to imagine a much tighter regulatory grip on these companies. Uh, but that depends on the will of the people and the will of politicians to uh, to understand what's at stake here. And, now, and what is your thought? What are your thoughts on cap and trade, for example, to take an issue? What What is your thought? Is that good or bad in your mind? Cap and trade's a mixed bag. Um, every economist I've spoken with uh, says that you know the, the intent of it is to create a predictable increase in the cost of using fossil fuels and emitting carbon over a long enough time horizon that people who make big investments in capital infrastructure. Uh, do that kind of large-scale planning can foresee the moment at which it becomes cheaper to make a change to non-fossil energy or cleaner energy versus continuing with what they have. Because at some point, the penalty that you pay on your emissions exceeds what it costs to change. The more predictable that is, the more, the more effective it is. Uh, and most of the economists I talk to would prefer to see that managed with a progressive tax because it's a relatively simple thing to do. When you create a cap-and-trade market that has price variability and, and it's much more susceptible to shenanigans and, and that kind of thing, it's harder to know whether, the effect, whether it will be effective. Could I ask both of you, and let me start with you, Pat, very short, please. I think that we're looking at a system that possibly needs to be overhauled. Uh, we are maybe looking at a world where greed, which is becoming a boring word for me, but nevertheless applicable, is suggesting that the systems we have in place now are, are no longer working. Um, what would you say very briefly would be uh, the way forward to change that whole uh, foundation by which we all live? Well, to me, I think the country is going in the wrong direction. Uh, for example, cap and trade is the selling, buying and selling of credits to pollute. Now, you can be a polluter, but if you have enough credits that wind up going through Al Gore's business in Chicago, if you wind up going through and you buy enough, you can pollute as much as you want as long as you have those. And at the same time, 
our energy bills are going to go through the roof as promised by Obama. Let me uh, I, I, let I me let me switch over to you, Tom. A response to that and to my original question, if you may. I think that in response to your original question, I think that to shift away from from a lifestyle driven by greed uh, toward other values that are more community humanitarian it, it is to focus on the human toll here uh, in the Gulf and tell this story as a broader story that isn't just about one accident that could be that could be hopefully cleaned up and and managed better in the future to reduce the risk, but really understand that the consequences of mistakes and the way we live are very real and harsh for other people. Tom Bowman, Pat O'Brien, thank you very much for joining the program today. I do appreciate it. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. And to our listeners, I hope that uh, you have received more information about this crisis, which you can uh, come to some sensible decisions about your lifestyle. You can gain information on this and any other program at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management